Thank you for listening to this podcast by Cornerstone Church of Ione. We hope that you found it encouraging and challenging. Please feel free to share this podcast with friends and family, and we will see you all next week. Some of you guys will be happy to know I have a timer up here for myself now. I was looking at some tactics and ways that uh, preachers and pastors uh, try to stay within time slots, and I found that many of them uh, will have even a large TV in front of them with a big countdown. That's how difficult it is for us to stay at a time. We need a 42-inch plasma with just numbers counting down to zero, saying you're done. And so uh, we got a little one up here, and my hope is that that'll help uh, me stay uh, within the time frame. Uh, if you have a bulletin, there is something worth mentioning in here. Uh, there are several names of people that have, uh, um, are, working, are going through the uh, membership process. Um, if I say your name and you're here, go ahead and stand up so we can just see you. Um, I know this is awkward, but uh, you know, this is just a bunch of people who like, would love and care for you. So is Anna Marie Brune here? Anne Brune? She's sick? Okay. Uh, Jan, I saw her. Where's Jan at? Jan Bray right there. Very nice. Robert and Laura Kopp. Are they here? All right. Uh, Sharon Wentz. All right. <laughs> Eric. There he is right there. Yeah. <laughs> right on. Um, and then Kathy Bergstrom. She's, I don't believe, here either. But uh, throughout this process, very neat stories. Hopefully you'll hear how God has transformed lives uh, in the next couple weeks, uh, part of that will be we have um, some baptisms coming up. Uh, one will be uh, second service. Uh, I think it's, oh no, one of these weeks coming up. <laughs> it's not next weekend, it's the week after. Uh, we're going to be having a baptism there for Kathy, and so that'll be, that'll be really neat to see that happen there. But I just want to point those people out. And, uh, and you know, there's other people that have even taken membership you know, packets to work through those. And so very cool to see the way God works and the way God has redeemed these people and brought him and called them and regenerated them himself. So that is pretty neat. Um, Speaking of uh, people gathering together, uh, a couple things. First, uh, we did it. We just did a church in the park in November, people. Very good. Yeah, I sent that email out. If you got it last night, I, I, as soon as I hit, uh, Nate and I were talking. I'm like, hey, it's not even supposed to rain today anymore. It's not supposed to rain tomorrow on Sunday either. I think we're golden. And so I go, I draft that email. Up, I send it out, and I go outside, and it's raining at my house. I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no. So, um, But yesterday, um, we do like to get various, uh, have various times where we can get together. Uh, we had some flag football going on, a little men's breakfast with some flag football and uh, that was, that was I, the reason I'm sharing this is because it reminds me of what's happening right here. We had five-year-olds and 45-year-olds playing football together um, and, and eating breakfast together and talking. And then we also had people slightly older than 45. They're all banged up and bruised up sitting you know, on, on the sideline. They're watching, making fun of the rest of us get hurt. And uh, what I love about it, though, is I... I love seeing these younger generation, like these young kids and these older uh, people together. 
And one of the things we value is this one service. We push that. We talk about it a lot because I believe there's something to this right here where I do like having children's things. But what I'd love to have is one big service where kids and adults are together when worshiping God together and another hour where we can go do uh, classes and study and dig deeper. But I want these young kids to know that this is their church. We are the church family. This isn't something for their parents. You are part of this church. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, whether you are five or 105, this is our church together. This is the church family. And so I love seeing family worship like this. Um, We are studying in the book of Acts right now. Uh, We are going to be starting chapter 4 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can start getting there. It will be the text that Jack read uh, so eloquently. And uh, we're going to be studying through that. So go ahead and turn there. And uh, as you're turning, I'm going to give a, a little bit of a summary to get us, to remind us where we're at right now. Uh, the, the apostles just healed somebody who's 40-some years old and cannot walk. It is somebody not who came out of the woodwork that they'd never seen before. And they're like, well, I think it's a miracle. People say he hasn't walked. These people had seen this man not walk for 40 years, sit by a gate, beg for money, and be, and be at the mercies of these Jewish people and these now Christians coming in to the temple, relying upon the generosity of God's people to sustain him. And then Peter and John show up, and he looks at this person who has been at the gate, which I believe so some people may argue me on this and that's okay but I believe Jesus walked by this man and did not heal him because if he'd been at this gate long enough Jesus would have walked by him and not healed him and we know that right that's not super shocking we know Jesus didn't heal every single person that had an ailment in his ministry but he healed I believe thousands and thousands of people and then there was a man left at this gate And the apostles of Jesus then show up and look him in the eye and say, I don't have the gold or silver that you're asking for, but I'll give you what I do have. And it's far greater than any gold or silver as he's sitting next to a gate that takes 20 plus people to open and close because it is so decorated in jewels and plated in gold. And he tells them about who Jesus is. Far more valuable than anything else. He mentions the name of Jesus and in his name and in Jesus' name, he then heals this man. And not only does he, does he get up and, and take a couple steps in the need to uh, regain his strength, but it says that strength was built up in there. He not only walked, but he ran and he leapt. And people were amazed, obviously, right? If we saw that happen here, we would all respond the same way. This isn't some fictitious book about magic potions and wands and people flying around. I think that's Harry Potter or something. <laughs> this is real. This is real life. This is the life of Christ. And then this is the apostles then going out and fulfilling the Great Commission. And so they go out and they're doing this. And guess what we see? We see a man healed. And the people are amazed. And we're like, of course they are. And so then they go out to this patio of sorts. And you see this man just so grateful and filled with uh, thanksgiving and praising the Lord so he understands who has healed him by what power. And people begin to gather, and this man that has been healed is clinging to Peter and John now. And then John, I mean, sorry, Peter, takes that moment to preach about who Jesus is. 
And we talked about that last week. And then this week, we're going to look at the response of essentially two different groups. Let's pray. Father, as we study your word this morning, I pray that this would be more than just storytelling time. I pray that it would uh, not be merely a motivational speech so that then we can go about the rest of the week feeling great about ourselves. I agree that each week that we come together and we study your word, that we begin to know more and more and more about who you are, who our God is. And then after that, who we are and what our purpose in this life is. Where hope and joy come from, where salvation comes from, where purpose comes from. God bless this time and anoint this service. And in Jesus Christ's name, amen. Chapter 4, verse 1, starts out like this. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and some Sadducees. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there is a resurrection of the dead. The priests that are being talked about here, are those who the temple goers regularly see and interact with to one degree or another. The captain of the temple was only second to the high priest. And the Sadducees, they were a very powerful religio-political group, probably leading more political than religious at times. And they held the majority of the seats in the Sanhedrin. The Sadducees, they believed primarily in arguably only in the Pentateuch, and believe that that was the only scripture. They did not believe in Jesus' resurrection, and they did not believe that mankind partook in any sort of uh, resurrection, and therefore there is no eternity, there is no heaven, and there is no hell. That's why they were so sad, you see. <laughs> the reason I say it is because it taught me a lot. Somebody taught me that, and I just couldn't forget the Sadducees then, and I got it, I understood it. My hope is that that happened. Okay, I apologize for the horrible joke. The Sanhedrin, uh, that was a superior court system in a sense. Uh, their job was to apply the law to the people of God. And so you can see why in that sense, the Sadducees were very interested in what was happening in the temple with the high priest and their, and their part in um, hearing cases and applying the law of God. And so these are the people that, uh, that are responding now. You have people that are amazed, and then you have this other group showing up that they are not too impressed. Verse 3, they arrested them, and since it was already evening, put them in jail until morning. But many of the people who heard their message believed it. So the number of men who believed now totaled 5,000. So God is continuing to build his church as he had promised he would, despite everything that is happening. But you have the people of God uh, working now in this complicated environment where there's a temple and there's uh, religi religio-political groups that are gathering and taking issue with what they're saying. But yet the church is still growing 5,000. That would mean probably realistically church was maybe 10,000 because in this time they counted men. 
and we don't, right? We count, we count everybody. But uh, uh, so when it says 5,000, there was, there was the men and their families also, and women were there. And so maybe more towards 10,000 people. By the way, can you imagine, just to know, when 3,000 or 1,000 or 1,500 people place their faith in Jesus Christ and then are baptized, do you know what it'd be like to baptize two, 3,000 people? If we tried to do that and we filled up a pool, the pool, it'd be like dunking Oreos in milk. The, the milk just keeps going down because some of the milk is staying on the Oreos. You'd have to have so much water because as you pulled people out, you baptized them and pulled them out, the water would be going down. You'd have to have a tremendous amount of water, tremendous amount of time to do that. And in fact, if you've ever wondered how they're able to baptize 3,000 people, we should have a conversation about that because um, there are many people who have studied how that's possible. But we're going to continue reading. Um, actually, before we do that, we want to talk about why they were arrested. They were arrested because um, anything that could possibly cause a revolt, they were essentially arrested. And if you did anything in the name of anything other than Jehovah, you would probably be killed. And so they see this happen, and they are on point now, and they're going to engage these people. And really, um, spoiler alert, they want them gone. What did this group just do to Jesus? Right, you guys see this connection. It's very important to realize this is the same group that tried and heard Jesus. And then now these people, uh, these apostles are going up speaking about that Jesus and saying that he's the author of life. And you crucified him, but luckily God raised him from the dead. And now he sits in a place of authority over you. You have to be reconciled to that God. How? Place your faith in Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins and turn to God. They're not going to like that because they just crucified the one you're calling God. They were put in jail because the Sanhedrin meets in the morning, and it was not morning, so they put them in jail and detained them until they could hear them and speak to them in the morning. Verse 5, look at your Bibles, let's read through this, verse 5. The next day, the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other relatives of the high priest. They brought in the two disciples and demanded, By what power or in whose name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of our people, are we, not, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. That's pretty powerful. Let's talk about these people that were there. Annas. Does he sound familiar? Some of you guys will pretend, oh, mm, yes, I remember that, Brian. Let's go to John chapter 18, verses 10 through 13. Then Simon Peter drew a sword and slashed off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave. But Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering the Father has given me? Does that sound familiar so far? 
Yeah, that sounds familiar. Let's keep reading. Jesus at the high priest's house. I don't know. Oh, sorry. I apologize. Skip that. So the soldiers, their commanding officer, and the temple guards arrested Jesus and tied him up. First, they took him to Annas, since he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest of the time. So Peter and John are standing before Annas, who also is the same person who Jesus was taken to when he was arrested. So if we're going to be like, hmm, let's guess how this will turn out. Well, what did he do to Jesus? So, by the way, it's important to know that Peter and John know this, and then they're being asked the question, in whose name are you doing this? So how is he going to handle this? Is he going to be bold and courageous and speak the truth? Is he going to quench the spirit? What's going to happen here? Caiaphas is Annas' son-in-law, who is currently the high priest. Annas is not the high priest anymore, by the way. It's like, you know how we call ex-presidents still president, right? So in the same way, this is, uh, they're, they're calling uh, Annas a high priest, even though he is not anymore. It's really his son-in-law, Caiaphas, and John is Annas' son. This is a family meeting, apparently. So those are the people there, same people who interacted with Jesus and sent him to the Romans to be tried and crucified. They ask, by what power or in whose name have you done this? That's a deadly question. And we already know why now, because we just covered that, right? That's a deadly question. If they could get these two men to attribute this miracle to anything other than Jehovah, which is the Hebrew name for God, there is a death sentence waiting for them. They were going to attribute it to Jehovah. The problem is that who they thought God was and who God was was different. Right? These Sadducees didn't believe that Jesus was God. And so therefore, as they're doing miracles in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, there's, there might be a problem there. What was Peter's response? Now just take a minute as we study the Bible, try to help us remember what's happening, know what's really happening, know the pressures on Peter and John and the expectations of Peter and John. This is, this is Peter's response. Rulers and elders of our people... Are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed in healing a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel, he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene. That's very specific. And then he goes on to say this, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures when it says that the stone the, the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. The Old Testament prophecies in scripture, which the Sadducees would have been very aware of, in Isaiah chapter 28 and Psalms 118 speaks of a stone that was rejected, but then was the cornerstone upon the foundation of the entire church. And what Peter's saying is the Bible prophesied that somebody would reject that stone. And Peter says it was you that rejected that stone. And now, just as prophesied, 
He is the one that holds the whole church together. Religious freedom. In our country, that's a core tenet. Even if you go through history and you see what prompted the pressures and the revolt to create this country, at the core of it is religious freedom. This idea that everyone can practice their own religion how they see fit so long as it does not violate civil liberties and laws. One of the core tenets. In fact, one of the ways we see this is we think like church, the separation between church and state, right? And what church and the separation of church and state does, it says we, don't, we won't let the government impress upon you a religion. And then people don't understand that because they don't pay attention in school. And what they think it means is that kids can't pray at school. That's not what that means. It means that the teachers, the public school, the government can't teach these kids which God to follow. They want that separated. The reality is this. It turned into you can practice your religion so long as it does not devalue or invalidate another religion which is very different. The, this is what I believe is true, but that doesn't mean what you believe isn't true are acceptable. Right? The religions that say, I believe this is true, but that doesn't mean that what you believe isn't true. Does that make sense? That, that is pervasive in our culture. And that is acceptable. If you hold to that, that is acceptable. One response to this reality is that Christians become marginalized by the government and its people, or the only other option, either you become marginalized, or the other option is that, is that Christians can begin to marginalize Scripture. Right? Either you feel marginalized, whether you actually are or not, you begin to feel marginalized as a Christian, or... We marginalize scripture and we change it so that we don't have to feel marginalized and we can adapt to culture and go with the current uh, flow of our culture. Does that make sense? The problem is that Christianity, the Bible, the one true God of the universe, teaches this little thing called verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And so if there is one way to be saved then, then we must believe and stick to that, and we can't marginalize that. So what's going to happen is we're going to come in contact in one way or another, because what we're saying is that there's only one way that leads to the Father, and that's through Jesus. And that's not acceptable. It wasn't acceptable here. And it's not acceptable where we are either. Uh, a lot of the studies that I like to read frustrate me because I believe that they lack precision and when identifying who a Christian is or who an evangelical is. And then so all these studies are based upon... Um, a categorization of who a Christian or evangelical is, even though I believe that that is done without precision, so then the actual statistics, I believe, are skewed. But it's still interesting to look at and learn what's uh, 
what's happening. Look at the uh, trends and comments. More and more it appears Christians adopt the belief that all God really wants is that people on this planet be a people of faith. More and more what studies are revealing is that Christians or evangelicals are more and more becoming a people that believe that what God really wants is that us people that inhabit this planet just to be a people of faith. And if you're a person of faith, you believe in something other than yourself and a higher power, and that's good enough. At least you're searching. At least you're looking. You're close. But the reality is this is a horseshoes. Right? Close doesn't get any points. It doesn't matter. Being a person of faith, because you believe that God is in the tree here, or that God is in keeping peace with people, doesn't put you any closer to salvation than the one who actively worships Satan. That belief system, as you drill down, makes faith equal an effort to be obedient. That whole section that we just talked about there, we see our culture say that your religion is fine, but any acceptable religion must contain that there's multiple roads that lead to the same God, that lead to the same salvation in the same eternity. And if you don't believe that, then your religion is not acceptable. And Peter is essentially faced with the same thing. He's being faced with, if I say that Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, the one that was murdered, rejected like a cornerstone, uh, and crucified on the cross, if I say that that is the one, that is the Messiah, that's the one the whole Old Testament is pointed to, that's the Savior of the world, the one true God that even these Sadducees believe that there was, he's like the promised Messiah, that was him. That's what the world needs. All past, present, and future human beings. That's what we needed. And you murdered him. But Peter sticks to the truth. Verse 12, I believe, is the truth. Verse 12 gets people killed in other countries. Verse 12 causes family gatherings to be horrible. Verse 12 causes families to separate. Verse 12 is like a sword that divides. Because what we believe the Bible teaches, the inspired Word of God, ultimate authority, the Bible is what we stand upon to make the decisions of our life, our worldview, our purpose, who God is, how we navigate this world, right and wrong, salvation matters of life and death, matters of eternity as we stand upon this. And it says that there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. There's one and it's Jesus. There's this interesting part here. Because we may think, how could you possibly know what to say in that moment, right? We don't struggle with this much. There's no police officers or federal agents right now at least coming and telling us, tell me who you were talking about Sunday morning in that park. 
We don't have that happening. But in other countries, and maybe in our future, there will be experiences like this. How could we possibly know what we're going to say and do it well and do it right? I don't know if you remember, we studied Luke not too long ago. Chapter 12, verses 11 through 12 say this. And when you are brought to trial in the synagogues before the rulers and authorities, don't worry about how to defend yourself or what to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what needs to be said. Matthew 10, 19-20. When you are arrested, this is when He sends out uh, disciples. This is when Jesus does that. When you are arrested, don't worry about how to respond or what to say. God will give you the right words at the right time. For it is not you who will be speaking. It will be the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. We go back to our text. Verse 10 of chapter 4. Let me clearly state to you, all of you, and to all the people of Israel, that He was healed by the power, powerful name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene. Above that, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. That's how it starts. When we ask, well, how did Peter respond when he was put in that place in front of the rulers and authorities? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and then he speaks. And he speaks the truth. He speaks it boldly. In fact, so boldly, we're going to see something in our next section here. Verse 13. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the Scriptures. And let me stop there. What they're saying is that these men aren't trained like we are. They didn't spend their whole life dedicated to, to, to the Scriptures, and there's families, family, 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 like generations of it, and yet they speak with boldness. And what they knew is they spoke in truth. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing right there among them, there was nothing the council could say. So apparently, the man that was healed, with probably a huge dumb grin on his face, is standing right next to them during all of this. He'd just been healed. And so they want to take Peter and John and do away with them, but they got this guy over here that the whole town just saw get healed. What are they going to do? So they ordered Peter and John out of the council chamber and conferred among themselves. Verse 16, what should we do with these men, they asked each other. We can't deny that they have performed a miraculous sign, and everybody in Jerusalem knows about it. But to keep them from spreading their propaganda any further, we must warn them not to speak to anyone else, to anyone in Jesus' name again. So they called the apostles back in and commanded them never to speak or teach in the name of Jesus again. That's a good question. We had just a little blip of a moment where we felt pressure upon our religious liberties during a pandemic, right? Like we can't meet in our building. I own that building, right? And what we decided as a church body, but lots of conversation among the elders and pastors, is what do we do during that time? Is this civil disobedience time? We're like polishing our like muskets and stuff. And what we decided is that God doesn't command that we worship inside of a building. And so, can we both obey God and respect our authorities as Romans and 1 Peter say we should? 
And we determined that we can. So that's how we came here for a year. Outside with our jackets, with hand warmers. Some of us have right now a church in the park chair. You bought it for this. And now you're whipping it back out. You're like blowing off the horse dust from when we were in the arena. Shaking it out. It still has that smell. What about this? What about when they say, never again speak or teach the name of Jesus? Let's see what the apostles do here. 19. But Peter and John replied, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? Rather than him. That's important. Because when that happens... Whether it's by a spouse, a child, a government, whoever it is, if it requires you to obey somebody else rather than God, that's when we do what we have to do, and that's when we obey God. That's why we ended up in this beautiful environment, which we actually also we love so much. He says this, Do you think that God wants us to obey you rather than Him? We cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. The council then threatened them further, but they finally let them go because they didn't know how to punish them without starting a riot. Does that sound familiar? Same issue they had with Jesus. All these followers show up. People know him to be the king of the universe. And they're like, we can't do anything with him right now because he'll start a riot because these people know who he is. And then it says this. So no, we, we don't know how to punish them without starting a riot. For or because everyone was praising God. For this miraculous sign, the healing of a man who had been lame for 40 years. Last week, I challenged the idea of what repentance looks like down into the nitty gritty a little bit. And I had a really good conversation with a brother in Christ. And he brought up a point about what about the person who is there on a Sunday morning and feels like they are absolutely worthless. And then you tell them that they need to repent because being yourself isn't good enough. What about that person sitting there and hearing that? That's a good question. And maybe I handled that conversation without delicacy. But I want, I want to be able to conclude this sermon here with something that I think addresses that and this text. In Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, it says this, When we were utterly helpless, you're like, Brian, that's not what the guy was saying. That's not, that's not what this person needs. Hear me out, though. That is my point. Hear me out. When we were utterly helpless, Helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God showed us his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. 
For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. What a turn that takes. Listen to this. While you were utterly helpless, while you were still a sinner, while you were still his enemy, while you were still fighting against lustful desires, while you were still failing as a parent, while you were still crippling your own marriage, while you were still falling short in your job, while you were still financially struggling, while you were still struggling with your self-image, while you were still holding on to anger, while you were still unrepentant, while you were still worshiping yourself, while you were still a murderer in your heart, Christ came at just the right time and died for you. He died for you when no one else would have and no one else could have. He died so that you could be forgiven of all those things just mentioned and so that you can be reconciled to Himself. Reconciled to God. He restored, it says, your friendship with God. And if He did that, He will certainly save us from condemnation and He will faithfully secure that. And verse 11 says, So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 15. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on Him to save them unless they believed in Him? And how can they believe in Him if they have never heard about Him? And how can they hear about Him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the Scriptures say, How beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring the good news. Because it's good news. Whether you read of the crucifixion or the coming of Christ, the persecution or the purpose of man, repentance of man or the renewing of the mind, fallenness, freedom, forgiveness, sin or sanctification, love or the lost, judgment or justification, there is hope and joy in the Lord forever for those whose faith is in Christ alone because there is no one else who saves. Everything we teach about here, for those whose faith are in Christ, there is joy in the conversation. Because if it is sin, we are saved from it. Because if, 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 it was, if it's a struggle, it's because we have power in the Holy Spirit. If there's a task we believe we can't do on our own, you're probably right. There are things that you can't do on your own. But anything the Lord wills you to do, you can do by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the power and the hope of Christ in us to accomplish the will of the Father. And so everything we teach and go about, whether it is talks about our sinfulness, we immediately think, I didn't deserve to be saved, yet God loved that while we were still enemies and sinners, He came and saved us. That's how much He loves. 
It should change our lives. There should be nothing that we talk about in the Bible. For those of us whose faith is in Christ, there should be nothing that we talk in the Bible that doesn't contain some hope and joy and thankfulness in that. On the other hand, the truth is that if you don't have your faith in Christ, all you will have is what the beggar at the gate wanted. You'll have your jewels and you'll have your gold. And that has no currency in heaven. My hope is that as we talk about the fallenness of man and how bad and dirty we are, that is encouraging because we have a God who came and saved us. We're going to take communion. Communion's all about that. It's all about Jesus. There are no other roads. We know that there's one road that leads back to right relationship with the Lord and that's through Jesus no one comes to the Father except through Him so we come and we celebrate this so we are going to take communion our ushers are going to come forward now and they're going to pass this around we're going to start with the bread so what I'll do is I'll I'll give moments for that to get around it will take a minute but that's going to be okay I want you to take that bread and hang on to it and we'll take it together
in Luke chapter 22, it says, And he took the bread, and he gave thanks and broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And those of us who are followers of Jesus, where we know there's no other way, we take this in remembrance of his work on the cross in our place. Those ushers are now going to hand out the cup. Go ahead and take a cup and hang on to that, and we'll partake of that together as well. In the following verse, in chapter 22, verse 20, it says, In the same way, after, the, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And we take this, remember, the blood shed for the payment of our sins.
Let's pray. Father, we remember several things in this section of text here. Your word, your inspired word for your people. God, we remember and we learn that while we were still sinners not doing good enough, you so loved that you sent your son. You came to earth and you paid the price for us. A just price that you did not deserve, but we did. You laid your life down for the ransom of many. God, I thank you for us being able to rejoice and our souls now can sing songs of praise. Being reconciled to you as friends or sons and daughters. Your creation in right relationship with you again. The only sense of true joy, true peace, comes from right understanding in who you are and what you've done and faith being placed in you alone. And we remember that there is salvation in no one else except for you. We know that you have given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved other than Jesus Christ. We love you and in Jesus Christ's name. Hey guys, this is our weekly podcast by Cornerstone Church of Ione. We're so glad that you decided to join. We are a church family passionate about seeing people worship Jesus, grow in their faith, and serve those around them. If you would like to learn more about Cornerstone, please visit us at cornerstoneione.org, or you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram.